You know, uh, I love this. I was sitting there chatting with uh, Simon uh, when we were doing this because back when I was a kid, I always talked during class too. And you know what he told me? It was so good. Simon, after the church service, you're going to show me your piano song. After everything happens. Simon wants to hear the story of Jesus turning water into wine because it's one of... Is that the one? He said he knows it already, but... I asked him if he would do cookies, too, but, uh... So, guys, I want to, uh, invite our scripture readers up, uh, to read, and I didn't get the mic ready just yet, so I forgot about that. But Carl is the office hero. Get it. All right. Always nice. So this is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All right. Hey, first, I want to thank Kyle. Kyle, wave your hand up there. Kyle, I haven't seen Kyle in years. Apparently, he saw me years ago, but my 50-year-old memory didn't there. But just to show up, get here early, and jam on the guitar and service like that, that was like an early Christmas present, man. I, I, I totally appreciate that. Thank you. So, let's all thank Kyle. Kyle Kurz. I mean, that's like a superhero name, like Clark Kent, double alliteration, or I, don't, I think it's single alliteration. Anyway, um, we're continuing on in our Advent series where we focused on a singular set of two passages every week, which is not traditional. Traditionally, you have a different story you focus on. But I thought in these crazy times that are still going on, in this crazy season, like everyone's talking about 2020, and then is 2021 going to be a similar year of the last year? But 2021 has been no picnic relative. And I personally, the stories I know, Mr. Congregation, even apart from illness, a lot of people have uh, suffered profoundly. And probably this is one of the two worst years of my entire life, if I'm honest. You know, you guys, uh, the, the process of... Uh, my, uh, caring for my father, losing my father, and all the severely adverse circumstances 
that, that preceded and followed his passing. It's uh, even right now, uh, I'm starting almost, uh, that was started kind of last November, I'm actually literally getting like flashbacks to it, you know? Um, and it's kind of embarrassing to admit about this, but uh, some of you know more in depth this story, but uh, I, I wanna be a little discreet. But uh, I, you know, it's been really rough. And so I think how that pairs with so much of the aching world, because a lot of times I'm not in sync with what's going on. But especially since 2020, it's like if you're suffering, you're in sync with the world, right? So um, God with us, the passage we just read, God with us. In the Advent series, we called this God's with us in this. And I might add, whatever the this is for you right now. You know this? God is with you in this thing you're experiencing. He's with you. He's with you. And I used to kind of imagine if God was with me, he's watching to see me screw up because I had a really skewed version of God. When now I see with him is like uh, a kid falls down and somewhere out of nowhere, his parent swoops in, lifts them up, and comforts them on the playground when they didn't even think of their parent for the last 30 minutes. The parent was there with them watching. And so the, the idea of God with us is not surveillance. The idea with God with us is looking for every opportunity to increase our awareness of the presence of Jesus. God is looking for every opportunity to increase our awareness of the presence of Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. To elaborate on that, like in the parable of the prodigal son, which is really, they shouldn't call it the prodigal son. If I were an editor, I mean, they didn't call it that. Actually, the later Bible people put their little subtitles on it. But prodigal son, like a parent, totally, a, a child screwing over their parents, taking some of their assets and parting themselves into the dirt. That is not an uncommon story. This is not, I mean, it's boring. In fact, the idea of oh, like rebellious kids, I mean, there's even tropes. People cast aspersions upon teenagers, you know, rebellious teens and stuff like that, which I, I hate, because I see more rebellious parents myself than I've seen rebellious teens. That's just me. But this idea in the parable of what I call the running father, because in the ancient Near East, Dad, who's been publicly shamed by his son, lifting up his little man dress cloak or whatever and booking it. I mean, first of all, people of influence and wealth or patriarchs, families, they did not run because, you know, the one minute manager says good managers never run. They're always chill. But the running father didn't even think twice about humiliation because the very speck of his son in the distance said, I have an opportunity to intervene and be with my son who was lost. So we're not, let's dispose of this surveillance Jesus because that's, that, first of all, surveillance is a really weak job. You don't think God would like have better things to do with his time than just passively surveil things? God is in it with us. He's in the dirt. He's in the stink. Jesus, you know, if he healed a leper, he hugged him. But a centurion said, do the long-distance heal. So this, super, this powerful person needs a healing done. And he said, Jesus is okay with doing it long-distance. But there's a leper. You know, lepers open sores, putrefaction of flesh, 
decay, smell. And Jesus is like rubbing it all over. I mean, Jesus would have had that stench on his garment. And I don't know when laundry day was for those guys, but it wasn't as often as our laundry day. So that is, Jesus is in it with the filth in the stink with us. Jesus with us. And I reflect on that and think of how was Jesus present to me during one of my top two worst times in life? Where was Jesus in the mix? In retrospect, how was Jesus present? And when I have these, like, kind of a memories, which... Um, when I have these memories, to be able to pause and say, Jesus, what were you doing here? Or Jesus, what do you feel about what was going on? Ask, and the idea of prayer can be a two-way street. Prayer is not filling out requisitions for stuff. Prayer is a conversation with the God of love who wants to transform us into more joyful beings. I mean, any animal can thrive. Any animal can thrive getting shelter, uh, food, their shots or whatever. You know, if basic core needs are met, animal, or they get to reproduce, animals are good. Humans can have all that and wish to end their life. How is it that if we just live in a closed system, which I, you know, I don't, I don't see faith in science remotely at odds. Science answers good science questions, faith answers good faith questions, and I'm so intrigued when they intersect, which we'll talk about a little later. But if we're just in a closed system with no divine architect, no divine creator, no artisan, then how is it that the, the apex species has come to the point where we can have our needs met and still sometimes feel like dying? That is not evolution. But it's human. And one of the names of Jesus is the man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And part of being in this with you, the last person you want to be present with you in a trauma is someone that hasn't known pain. The last person you want to have with you in a trauma is someone who's not self-aware of their own pain. Because a lot of times that person will default to trying to fix you. And one of the best things to have during a traumatic period is someone with you, with you. I mean, every grief counseling book could be probably 60% of a grief counseling book could uh, be summarized by this. Shut up. Right? Shut up. I, remember, I mean, I literally, I remember my mom got cancer. A pastor told me, well, don't even weep one tear because God is in all of this. And I'm like, yeah, God's in this. And he's really upset. He hates this stuff. You know, I will shed a tear. <laughs> you know, uh, anyway. So, man of sorrows familiar with suffering. You know, how often, have you, you, how often do you guys use sorrow as part of your everyday lingo? Is that, I mean, you know what it means, but who uses sorrows in their routine speaking? Okay, two people. Awesome. You guys get a brownie afterwards if we have any. Um... But what if we were substitute as a man of traumas, familiar with trauma? Familial, familiar, who's in adjacent to and has intimate knowledge of trauma. Um, 
I just looked this up on a, a whim here, and I'm just going to just read uh, the opening text of an article. Maternal lifetime trauma exposure, prenatal cortisol, and infant negativity affectivity. Little research has examined the impact of maternal lifetime trauma exposure on an infant's temperament, and it goes on. Essentially what it's saying is when the mother undergoes trauma, it affects the baby's brain in a way, not in the conscious memory, but in their memory nonetheless, and the kid has carries those traumatic wounds. And you're thinking, oh man, it's like inescapable then. We're, no matter what, we're screwed. But this idea, Mary, imagine, single mother in the ancient Near East, you know, she had not hooked up with Joseph yet. Everyone presumed that she had been sleeping around. And so in that culture, not as much in this culture, but in that culture, she, unless, it would have mentioned if something non-normal happened, if something against the norm happened, the Bible comments on it. Usually it doesn't comment on things that are the norm. And we know the norm in their culture would have been, Mary would have been shamed and an outcast. I can't think of a time a mom needs more support or a woman would need more support and more people to get their back is when they're carrying a precious baby or they're going through the traumatic process of adoption. You know, one way or another, bringing a child into your family is a trauma capped off with joy, right? But Mary knew rejection in a culture that did rejection more than our Western culture does. We do rejection different styles. And Mary had to go, Caesar basically wanted to tax more and required a census where people had to travel. Now Israel's the size of Indiana, but it's a lot longer when you're on a donkey or something. It's a lot longer when you have to take special routes because you know you will get marauding robbers will terrorize you. You couldn't travel in a straight line back in the day. And this woman who's been through trauma is traveling and then uh, labor pains hit and she can't, the state, they say there was no room in the inn. Now these were, the inn would have probably been distant relatives that are expected by ancient Near Eastern custom. Still like this in uh, the Muslim world in uh, uh, Middle East is you are expected to house anyone that comes to your door, especially family. And no one had room. Now, the one thing that would trump hospitality is shame. And the idea of someone getting you shame. So uh, my, my kind of presumption has been that rejection had little to do with no room and had everything to do with Mary being out to here and them not having consummated their marriage. And then even after birth, uh, you know, Roman soldiers going out in this very tiny village and killing children and Jesus escaping. So in the arms, in the arms of mom, which is still like being in the womb, right? It's like they're still connected. You know, when a baby cries, mom's milk lets down. There's still this like amazing connection. And throughout his life, growing up in the, as a Jewish person in Israel, under Roman rule was trauma after trauma after trauma. So all this to say is Jesus is not above it, Jesus is in it. Emmanuel, God with us. So my question is this, why as human beings, why 
do we crave joy if all of our other needs are met? Why do we create joy that only comes from certain kinds of relationships and acceptance? Why do we crave unconditional love when humans are not inclined generally to unconditionally love people except maybe their kids? A lot of people are inclined to unconditionally love their kids and eventually the kids wear out the welcome, the natural flow of things. But why were we born to crave something that so many people don't get? You know, we all put on our little shiny, happy, clip-on face of togetherness. And listen, you guys are pretty good at not putting it on. But in general, you gotta keep up appearances when you go to work. And this idea that Jesus can see beyond every mask. Jesus sees every tell. The most emotionally brilliant person ever to walk the world who's directly connected to us by the Holy Spirit. Why do we crave and need to keep on going these ethereal things like love, acceptance, um, joy, hugs, I mean, and understand, babies need, need hugs because a hug is continually reminding them, yes, you're going to get your food. Don't stress out about it. Yes, you're going to get what you need. Every time you hug a baby, they're reminded, you're going to be okay. So they don't have an extended period of, holy crap. But we don't need mom to feed us, but we still need hugs. Now, some people sensory-wise don't do hugs, and there's other things. You know, there's hug substitutes. I'm a hugger. I hug like this. Don't pat me. That just annoys me to death. But we crave an irrational story. We have an inborn craving for God with us. Every culture in human history has reached for some level of transcendent reality, one way or another. People have reached for a transcendent, something beyond them, something that the scientific method doesn't apply to, something that you can't measure, you can't... Now, there are certain ways people perceive the transcendent at times. But in general, not in a laboratory environment. So our bodies, our mammalian bodies, crave spiritual transcendence that shows its face in unconditional love. And a lot of people personalize this feeling of the transcendence into a god. But people's life trauma caused them to invent gods that were their worst enemy. The idea is like bad things happen if there's a God, it's his fault because he's above it all, not helping. And this God, so there must have been two gods fighting and one killed the other than the earth. You know, whatever mythology you go to, it's violence and chaos and ugliness. And then humans just kind of get into the mix. And then Genesis comes along and talks about God conducting a symphony of creation, this beautiful description, like giving a, a, a take on it, something we otherwise couldn't understand. Uh, showing this idea, it was good, it was good. And man, people are so good. They're in my image. And frankly, people, you know, certain theological traditions tell you this. They say, because of the fall, there is not one good thing about us. Or that God cannot stand to look at evil. So we can't look at your sin. So we had to, listen, no one looks at evil more, more easily and more often than God. God does look to evil because he's always looking to save. God is always inviting. 
He has, from before all of us existed, his operating system, his determined way of being was, I'm inviting everyone. Uh, I, I don't, but being a relational God, he doesn't force it. And being a relational God, free will and other things run amok here. But God came with us and suffered alongside us. Now, I'm, I can't give the whole story here. But this idea that we crave, I would say even people who've made a God in their enemy's image. And I know so many Christians who paint God the Father as an abusive father. Like, if there's a way you can read things twice, or, you know, the Bible gives what people say about God, and it gives what God says about God. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, you know, God says, don't touch, don't eat the fruit. Eve quotes him as saying, don't touch the fruit. Right there at the beginning of the Bible, quoting God and what God really says. And then we're told in the New Testament that it's all about Jesus. You know, Jesus is a crystal clear revelation. Any ambiguity to Jesus. And what I love about the Gospels is whether it's me or precious Simon Machete, we get the stories. Simon has not been to seminary or studied ancient Greek, but we both get that water to wine to cover a family from shame and bring juice to the party is cool. No scholarship needed there, but it's the crystal clear revelation of what we once knew in shadows. So, so what we've been doing is we've been... If every good and perfect gift is from God, then every good thing we've experienced or every percentage of goodness in a human experience is a grace from God. It's the light poking through the darkness. Many of us have complex memories, especially of the holidays. Oh, so great to see grandma and grandpa, but Uncle Ted was a real jerk. You know, they're they're, they're, there's a splinter in your memory, but you work to let the good things subsume the bad. Um, and with memories, the problem is, is the animal side of humans, we remember bad memories much more than good memories because for an animal, remembering where the wolf wants to attack you and kill the member of your pack is imperative to stay alive. Animals learn how to stay safe because they remember bad memories and good memories are not as necessary. Now you get dogs, dogs are half human and it's a little different, but, uh, but you get wild, completely beastly animals that have not been domesticated and had human attributes rub off on them. Domesticated an animals need to remember bad things to stay alive. We need to remember good things to thrive in life. In fact, focusing on every bad splinter is deadly. And I would say for every time we articulate, every time we articulate something horrible that's happened, it's really good to verbally go into the archives and articulate seven ways that Jesus has been present to you and given you joy. And this is not the power of positive thinking. This is about renewing our mind with truth. The fact is, the fact is bad things happen to you, good things happen to you. The fact is there's good attributes to you and bad attributes to you. Truth is a meta story. Truth is so much bigger than that. Truth isn't just the truth. It's the story that the facts find context within. And the truth is you're a precious to a God who is with you. That is the truth. 
So if, when we review the facts of our life, successes and failures, abuse we've suffered, it's the way we renew our minds is we always look at those memories with Jesus by our side, continually reminding us of our, how loved we are and how he's with us in this. When I have someone holding me through a trauma, it's a lot different than thinking people are judging, on how, judging me how I'm dealing with the trauma. So this God with us, thinking about all these things the Bible has said about renewing your mind, which seemed ridiculous. Well, that's just poetic fluff that isn't really meaningful in the scriptures, because we know once you damage part of the brain, it's gone forever, right? I mean, basically, all neuroscientists agreed till a study was published in June 2000, the journal Stroke Medicine, about the brain's ability to dynamically reroute and strengthen around damaged tissues. And all of a sudden, all these Bible metaphors of what can happen to our minds are hardcore science. And I, I just kind of generally work, uh, this is why I love science explainer videos, because to me, I've yet to find one that doesn't put me in awe of how brilliant God is. And I just love it. And so this, this idea that now we know the brain can reroute, and now we have the ability at the every year that goes up tremendously to measure how practices impact the brain. Joy heals the brain. Renewing our mind is the best joy. Joy is not euphoria. You can get euphoria from heroin. You can get euphoria through a buzz. You can uh, get euphoria from a hookup. But they all have this fleeting deal where you have this good feeling and then you feel a little lower afterwards or neutral. And this idea, so joy is not euphoria. Triggering certain parts of our brain can give us euphoria. Joy is a story. Joy is the story of Jesus. The, in iterations of that story, this is why we tell the caught in the act stories, iterations of God's joy story play out through all of you. And over the years, I have seen it. And I can't, based on what I've seen, I can't imagine how many great things I'm not aware of. Because I know how cool God is. God uses you even when you don't know it. I know, I know several of you here that you don't have a clue of how your kind presence changes lives around you. You just don't get it. Joy is a story. And that story can produce a feeling. Or that story can sustain our will to live when we're not experiencing euphoria. Joy, the story of joy has been able to be with me through seasons of clinical depression because the story held me. The story God told me I couldn't get away from. I wasn't feeling it, but I, I couldn't dispose of it either. And the story kept me stable. You know, when you're immobilized after an accident, it's no fun, but it means you can heal and get back to normal. And I think the joy of the Lord has immobilized me after difficult times in my life so I don't cause more damage. The joy of the Lord has immobilized me, so in difficult times of my life, I don't do more damage. That is one way God is with us, is the story is with us, in reflecting on that story. But something uh, that in our culture we've gotten away with is because we have so many visual mediums, movies, films, virtual reality goggles, whatever. In the ancient Near East, they didn't have much. But they had verbal stories, and I can't imagine what the imaginative part of their brains looked like. 
Like, can you imagine if you didn't have television movies and you had to conjure up images from scratch all the time? Everyone was a producer and cinematographer in their mind. I mean, can you imagine? We're going to meet people in eternity that for their whole earthly life had these super brains that we're only beginning to experience when it comes to imagination. And these folks would hear the scriptures. They wouldn't read it. They wouldn't highlight it. They wouldn't diagram a sentence in Greek because there was one copy in a building and someone read it to a bunch of them. And they would imagine it and they would reflect on it throughout their time. Now, what happens when you reflect on scripture when you believe Jesus, the presence of Jesus is always with us? Well, then Jesus is with you in that reflection. So it stands to reason that part of renewing the mind, which is the story we're so grateful for, becoming the dominant story over the story that we tell, the false story we tell ourselves. That joy story of Jesus and every good and perfect gift is from God. So what, this has been kind of a repeated message for, this is the fourth week, because I want you guys to have what has saved my life. I want you guys, what I have that has helped me through to the point of age 50. From a totally rejected kid, born in privilege, but born weird, you know, up here, the thing that has made life better each year and not worse. I don't know too many people can say life is better. I, I'm nostalgic about Transformers and G.I. Joe, but I'm not nostalgic about going to the past. I don't want to go in uh, time machines. I mean, there's a lot of sociological reasons why going back in time would be bad, too. I don't want to go back in time because I love right now, and I love who God has healed me to be right now. I don't want to time travel. I get enough of it watching Doctor Who. But this idea that looking at memories and seeing the good memories, where I've cultivated a few good memories in my mind palace, for those of you that watch Sherlock. My mind palace, I'll, I'll share this with you. I've got a few, but I'll share one that I can share. It's with my kids both asleep in front of the fireplace, and Kathleen's one of these cute sleepers. It almost looks like she's posing. And Ian's one of these slack jaw sleepers uh, with drool, a puddle of drool. And they're there, and then Adrian is on the couch because she doesn't sleep on the floor, and she's just nuzzled up in a blanket. And I'm sitting here, the fire's going, they're sitting there, and I imagine myself, like, I am an iPhone on a recharging deck right now. This is abundance. This is, this experience of intimacy with my family. You always can sleep when you feel safe. The fact that everyone feels safe together. Four people who feel totally safe together, who unconditionally love one another, and would lay down their lives for each other, enjoying a warm fire. Does it get any better? So... They're all sleeping, so when I meet with Jesus, he's whispering, because you don't want to wake the kids up. And having that way of, instead of talking, imagining if God is in every good memory, and God is in every good thing, then it makes sense that that would become a venue to pray to Jesus. And as so I ask Jesus, asking him questions, what do you think? And so far, Jesus has never agreed with the bad things I believe about myself. I, even though my mind is broken in some ways for some reason when i pray like that jesus has never agreed with the lies now that's not true for everyone some people really need an experience of freedom and deliverance because their brain naturally imagines jesus to be abusive and there is healing for that my personal experience has been that i've been able to experience jesus in that way and 
Adrian just approached me this morning, and she goes, Jeff, I just found this note I took, and I was reflecting on it. What is this? He goes, well, three years ago, we were sitting in front of the fire in the backyard, and I was asking you, what's been bummed? Why are you so bummed out? And you spent an hour and a half giving me a list of all the ways that you feel like a failure. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but I wrote down everything you said. And I called the, I called the note on my phone, lies Jeff believes about himself. And she goes, I was just reading it today and just seeing, not all of these are gone, but you're doing a lot better than you were three years ago. Certain lies you don't believe anymore. And three years ago, there were lies I didn't believe that I believed in the year 2000. And so my lie quotient is going down and my joy quotient is going up. Not euphoria, but the true story giving direction and meaning and presence in my life. So, Jesus often reminds me of what's true about me, and not because I'm working in a vacuum. I, we've got four Gospels, and if you listen to it at double speed, you can wake up a half an hour early every morning and binge listen to a whole Gospel. I try to tithe my Netflix watching, <laughs> or probably, hopefully more than that. But, um, so this idea, we've been doing a prayer, and I want to just lead us in a prayer now. And some of you, if you weren't here previous weeks, so you can catch up. The book we're drawing from heavily, one of my favorite books, a good friend of our family wrote, uh, Jeff Holsclaw and Sid Holsclaw. And Sid Holsclaw is like uh, a Nero theologian. That's the thing. And uh, it's called, Does God Really Like Me? You know, we all love people we can't stand to be around. But not only does God love us, but he wants to always be present to us. That's epic, right? I mean, family reunions are great as long as they're not forever. Um, so I want to do something really quick. Can everyone who has a smartphone take out a smartphone? And everyone that has a pen or paper take that out. And I'm going to... I'm just going to give you something to do. It's going to be 60 seconds, and this is going to be like, you ever play Boggle where you have to write as many words you can come up with? Well, the, this is like Boggle. What I need you to do is, uh, and can someone pass out communion while we're doing this? Uh, Kevin, can you do that? So I want you to quickly write 10 joy reminders, 10 ways God has been present to you or giving you joy or 10 joy experiences you've had. Whether in the last week, and I'm talking even tiny ones. Tiny ones. Nothing's too small, nothing's too big. Go. Okay, 60 seconds. Uh, did anyone get 10 whole memories in that time? Who? Anyone get eight? All right. You know, the more you do these practices, 
you're going to not be able to put your pen down. This doesn't fix things, but it fortifies things. So I want you to think of those uh, 10 memories. And we've been doing this idea that we've been going to a, a peaceful, serene place in our memory. Because God is in all and through all, and God is present in every circumstance. God was present to you during that time. Whether you knew it or not, Jesus was there. So I want to imagine you observing this memory with Jesus. I want to ask you some questions. So I'm going to just ask right now, Lord Jesus, that you would send your Holy Spirit to speak to these people, your creation, your prized artwork your beautiful friends, you would speak to them. Holy Spirit, come. So as you're in this good place with Jesus, uh, how is he, is he standing next to you? Is he standing in front of you? Is he sitting down with you? I just want you to imagine, like make this concrete, produce this film, all right? Where's Jesus in location to you? And if we presume that Jesus is the kindest person ever to walk the planet, what's Jesus look like? What's his face? When he looks at you, what do you see in the eyes of the kindest human being ever, the kindest God-man ever? What do you see in his eyes? imagine Jesus kind of a grin on his face saying you like this like, you enjoy this it's a good memory you like this and just you see he's reveling in being with you like this is a God who's not troubled by it to be your presence but he would take every bit it could give do you like it now Jesus asks you well let's get specific here what do you like about this memory Begin to tell Jesus what you like about this time. As you kind of tell Jesus what you like about this time, or maybe you were at a loss for words, either way, presume he is really cool with you. I want you to stay in this place if you can. Stay in this memory. And I want you to think about this. What do you want to ask Jesus about who you are and what you should be doing right now? What do you want, what do you want Jesus to speak, at, speak to you about? Where do you need comfort with Jesus right now? While you're in this place, Share the thing heaviest on your heart with Jesus right now. As you imagine Jesus, what does his comforting presence look like as you share this?
so I presume you're looking at a compassionate Jesus and not getting criticized right now. But if you're engaging the compassionate Jesus right now, generally two things happen when I do this. Most of the time, I have a sense of love that is ineffable. I have a sense of acceptance. It's like a metaphysical hug. All right? I feel God's loving presence. Sometimes, I find God rarely answers our questions. But he generally is very faithful to give us a next step of radical obedience. I'm more likely to get direction from God if it impacts the next 24 hours versus the next life. So let's just be open. And if Jesus, like, maybe... Uh, gives you, like, invites you into something. What? Think of what Jesus may be inviting you into, and maybe he's just drawing you near for a hug. So let's just picture that in your head. memory place where you don't have to if you don't want him if this is still God's still doing something um, I can imagine Jesus saying something along the lines of hey let's let's not wait too long before we do this again let's let's make this a thing as we're uh, entering into ministry time God with us was culminated in God within us God with us became God within us, meaning we become a temple where the spirit of Jesus dwells. It doesn't make us act perfect or live perfect, but it begins like it's almost like a home remodeler, expert restorer takes up residence in the guest bedroom of our house. And while we're living in the house, keeps making these amazing improvements. You know, and home improvement is very tedious, much harder than a new build. Right? You can build from scratch, it's easy. If you have to fix an old Victorian house, get ready. But God, Jesus moves into the temple, moves into the house of your life, and begins this restoration process. When we take communion, the body and the blood of Christ, such a weird and awkward symbol. But if you know the story of Passover, you see why Jesus chose this ceremony to remix. He remixed, reappropriated it. He took a story for freedom for a nation and made it a freedom for humankind. Jesus is like this crystal that if you take light to one people, he refracts that light to all people. The night he was betrayed, Jesus gave thanks. He took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. I'm laying down my body for you. After the supper, he took a cup. He said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, remember me. Telling him he's going to break, his body's going to break imminently. His blood is going to spill imminently. And he does it all out of love. And Apostle Paul said to remember every time we're doing stuff like this together, that Christ is in us. So let's do this. 
Lord Jesus, come. Did I just preach a whole sermon with my mask on? Oh, that's weird. Oh, well. Um, just be next to considerate. Don't expect it next week. Um, so as we've taken Jesus in us, here's the great thing. Because of you, broken, limping you, who still has plenty of lies that you need to delete, plenty of lies that need to be erased. God's erased a bunch, but there's plenty more. But where you are right now, I want you to know that God is going to release you to be a part of people's joy memories. God is desirous to use us all to enact his joy storyline with people in acts of kindness, in tremendous generosity, in presence to people, in prayer for people, in provision for people. What you guys do, God's always going to invite you. If you feel a nudge to help, that's God. But I want to I want to say this. God will use you as someone that can be a part of healing the trauma of others while he's healing your trauma. And you're not too screwed up. You're not the special needs Christian. You know, if there is a special needs category for Christian, then we're all on that bus. All right? And God has an IEP to make space for us all. Praise Jesus. So let's stand. Um, I'd like to invite, we have people to pray for you. Listen, guys, you're going headlong to the holidays. Better get some prayer. We have non-judgmental, non-advising people who are fellow screw-ups and joyful-filled people and healers like you. God brought up anything painful. Get some prayer about it. If you believe God is calling you to an act of obedience, get some prayer about it. God may be calling some of you to be generous with this One Good Home project, which I checked out. Uh, actually, Carl, you were wrong. Uh, it's not uh, 5%. It's 10% as of the service. So we're 10% there towards the $50,000. That's $10,000. No, $10,000 is 20%. Excuse me, no, we're 20% there. Um, and I believe, amen? And I believe God's going to speak to you guys to join in on that hospitality deal. But Lord Jesus, we crave your presence. We crave your voice. We crave your love. Help us be instruments of your peace. And Jesus Christ, thank you for these people. They're so awesome. Amen.